Hello and welcome to the Villain Era podcast. My name is Justine and I'm so excited for you guys to join us this week. I have on a super freaking amazing guest. So our guest this week is Lacey Shea Healy. Lacey is the CEO of My Coach Community where she leads a team of I believe three other coaches who handle nutrition and fitness coaching. And then she's also my amazing business mentor and coach. I have been working with her for the past year now, and I can honestly say she has truly changed my life. She has changed the way I look at the world. She has helped me through the hardest times that I've had to go through. Last year, Lacey's business brought in a million dollars, and she's navigated this all through raising two kids, having her father pass away, and a lot of other hardships. So in this episode, we really dive into how she manages this all, how she controls her emotions through all of this and shows up as an amazing business leader and a leader in the community. This interview, we just jumped right into conversation. She had asked me before we started recording how my date was. And then as I started to answer, she was like, you better record this part. So without further ado, let's just jump right in. And I hope you guys love this as much as I enjoyed having the conversation. Yeah, he likes to get a shot shout out on the podcast. So my date was good because actually there's going to be a podcast that will release today. And I was like... You know, he didn't take me on a date last week, so I told him he had to step up. So he took me on a date last night. We've gone on, like, like four, like, official dates, but we hang out a lot. And he's nice. He's, like, really, really nice. Like, I don't know. It's, like, I'm, like, scared that I like him kind of thing. Mm. Yeah. Does it feel too soon? No, not at all. Because I think one of the things that is very, like, like, I feel like I very much, like, mourned my relationship, like, way before it was mm-hmm. over. Yeah. Um, like, I was out. I was done kind of thing. And I just more so, I'm, like, I'm scared to get hurt. Like, that's what I'm, like, oh, like, is this going to be, you know, I don't know. Is it that with anything, really? Like, yeah. I was writing, I forget what I was writing a couple of days ago. I, I actually it was on my own podcast last week. I was like, I truly believe that every person that's, and I used the word, and I actually, it's like, I said it on my podcast. I was like, are people going to get this? Or am I going to get canceled for saying this? I was like, I believe that every person that's cognitively able. And the reason why I said cognitively able is because I have a child that's not necessarily cognitively able. Every person that is cognitively able has the infinite potential to do incredible and amazing things. I don't think that there's any human that's like born on the planet that's just like a dud. Like, congratulations. I, you know, we just made you, we're just gonna make you useless. Like you're just totally, I I put you on this earth to be completely useless. Like, I don't believe that for any human being, but I think through trauma, conditioning and fear, them all three together, people very rarely step into their full potential and label themselves useless or not able or not capable because of fear, conditioning, trauma, et cetera. And so they never, the potential is never realized. 
Yeah. And so it's true really with anything, whether it's a relationship, like there's fear, like, oh my gosh, I really feel this. But if I allow myself to feel this and I like allow myself to be immersed in this, then I'm going to get hurt. And so there's a lot of people that, that don't for like long periods of time or they run, maybe they have like a more like avoidant attachment style that feeds into a pattern of running, or maybe like there's like, just like this conditioning of like every person, it gets to a point that it's bad and they again, default to like moving away. And the same thing happens in business. It's like, there's all of this vigor and excitement and everything when you get started. But the first time people really start to hit not just one roadblock, but multiple roadblocks, that fear of the unknown, that fear of, is this going to hurt me? That fear of, am I going to end up living in a tent on the side of the road (laughs) starts to come in and we slowly self-sabotage. And a lot of times, like, just like in relationships, like sometimes we don't even realize that we're self-sabotaging. Like we slowly disengage. It's like, it's like starts with like, like these slow withdrawals, right. That are fueled by fear. Yeah. And in business, it's the same thing. It's like, it's a slow withdrawal. It's like slowly like, okay, well, I don't show up on stories as much or, oh, okay. So I don't talk about what I'm doing or, oh, so I don't spend as much time doing this or, oh, so I don't do the back end stuff that needs to be done. So there's this slow disintegration, this slow pulling away that happens. And it's all fueled by fear when every single human is capable of having full relationships. Every single human is capable of having full access to wealth and prosperity. And I mean, there's obviously there, there are, we could go into a whole level of like, you know, socioeconomical things, racial things, cultural things that like can think, but still, and some people are set way further back than others, et cetera. Like there's no denying that. But when you get to the root of it as like just living human beings, take away all of the other things, all of the conditioning, all of the everything, take it all away and just strip it down to like a human each human is capable of the same exact thing, but there's the barriers. Mm -hmm. Those that succeed are the ones that just consistently go over the barriers. Those that have lasting full relationships are the ones that continue to go over the barriers, even while you're in a lasting relationship. Yeah. Well, okay. So this actually, this past Saturday, we had talked about doing like a triple date. So he's already met my brother. That's actually how we met is my brother is dating one of his best girlfriends. So we met through them. And so then we've been talking about doing kind of like a triple date. So last Saturday I was like, oh, I'm like, okay, well, like, let's go. We'll all go to ramen tonight. We'll do a triple date. Well, it turned out like my brother and the girl, they couldn't go. So when he found out it was just my sister and her husband he actually backed out. He was like, mm-hmm. let's reschedule. And then I ended up, we ended, I went out that night. Like I was a little drunk, got home, called him. I was, I was upset that you rescheduled. Cause also he had dropped me off Saturday morning and I had a feeling he was going to cancel and he didn't cancel to my face. And then he canceled like 
an hour later via text message. And I was like, I knew you were going to cancel. Like, I wish you would have just said. My first instinct, 100% was I'm done. Deleting his number, going into that, like, avoid it for a minute. And then we talked about it. And then, I mean, I was a little, I was drunk. So I was not exactly in the (laughs) position to have a conversation. Then I went the next day, I was like seriously anxious, really got into my like anxious attachment style. Finally, when I called him, he was just like, you told me that you were upset. We talked about it. I really appreciate that you told me how you felt. I want you to know that we can talk about anything. And I was like, okay, okay. (laughs) Wait, what? Uh, Yeah. I'm like, you're not like going to leave me right now. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. but like, but for sure, I was like, I'm, I'm gonna run, I'm done. And so last night on our date, it was really nice. He was just like, I feel like I can really be myself with you, but like, I want to make sure I'm doing enough. I want to make sure that you, you keep liking me and you keep staying interested. And I was like, this is really nice to hear from like a girl's perspective because I feel like we're always so worried about, oh, do mm-hmm. they like me? But to have someone who's like, okay, we're communicating. I don't have to just go run. Like we were talking about like future dates. We can do all this stuff. And he was just like. Yeah, we'll do it all. Like, I'm not going anywhere. Oh, Mm. okay. (laughs) Thankfully, I go to therapy and I feel like I have the tools where I realized what I was doing. That's how I felt. But at the same time, I'm like, okay, we're going to sit and we're going to journal on this. And actually, you always ask this. I sat and I just said, what is true? Like, Mm. I literally like journaled on the situation of like, what is true? Yeah, just seeing like you're just making up scenarios in your head. Mm Because he told me, he's like, yeah, I just felt like meeting your sister one-on-one was like moving a little too fast. He's allowed to feel that way. If that's what he feels. To your point, though, you have to allow yourself to be hurt. You can't go through life. We're going to get hurt in some way or the other. And that's not a life where you want to not take any chances of getting hurt. No, I mean, a core human motivation is self-protection. And to a detriment, a lot of people self-protect at the expense of things that they actually want. They don't allow themselves to want the things that they want because they're protecting themselves from the possibility that there might be failure and root to the things that they want. This goes for everything. This goes for weight loss. This goes for business. This goes for dating. This goes for careers. It goes for any little thing. Our human first predisposition is to protect like you know we have a million year old million like a prehistoric system in our body that is designed to keep us safe our nervous system literally has all of this information that's compiled over our entire life to tell us what is safe and what is a threat and over time we start to perceive things that are safe as threats because of prior information that our nervous system has stored. And so we make decisions from our lizard brain, Mm -hmm. primal place in us for safety, when in reality, it's not a lack of safety at all. And that, you know, I feel like we're getting to a point in humankind at least I hope so. I feel like we're getting to a point in humankind where people are starting to realize and recognize this. And if people are able to do what you just did, where you can actually work through and process and you have the tools, if more people are able to have these tools to be able to work through and process, then we're not only going to have more communicative relationships and marriages, 
but we're going to have people that fully do start to step into their potential because they have the tools to recognize that they can look at them own their own selves and go, I see what my body is trying to do. Notice I'm not saying mind. It's mm-hmm. not your mind. It's really not your mind. This is why I think all of that stuff like mindset shit is bullshit. It doesn't, it's not your mind. Your body is your main processor. And so if you have people that can look at themselves and recognize what their body is feeling and recognize, okay, my body is perceiving this as a threat. Why? If they can understand the programming that got them to the point where they had this response to this and understand the root, then they can move through it. And I always tell my clients, the hardest part is when you first make these realizations because it can feel like a slow trudge to work through and process and make yourself feel safe in situations that previously felt really unsafe to make yourself move forward in situations that felt really uncertain before. But the more you do it, it's just like anything else. The more you learn to recognize and call yourself, I don't like to use the word term shadow work. I don't, I I think that's a, I think that's junk trauma informed jargon, but the more you are able to look at the thought processes and the behaviors that come up and work through them and understand where they're coming from, from the easier you'll get through things. And then it's not such an energetic drain Mm -hmm. this happened, like this happens in, I've been able to see this happen in my relationship. I've been able to see this happen in my business. I've been able to see this happen in my journey as a mother. I've been able to see myself work through this as a daughter. The the ability to recognize when and why these feelings are coming up is like the biggest key to like ultimately happiness. Because we know, I mean, I, I could talk about this all day. Like we know money can help with happiness. Success can help with happiness. Having the body that you want can help with happiness, but it's not the key to happiness. Having the best relationship is not the key to happiness. If you can't be fully present in the relationship because you're considering all of the baggage that you're bringing in. Yeah. So I actually wanted to touch on this because I think it's really interesting and we're kind of getting into somatics here, right? Essentially like, and I would love for you to explain for definitely people listening who maybe don't get it. What would you say? kind of the difference between like somatic therapy and regular talk therapy that a lot of people are used to. For me, like I have to kind of backtrack about like how I even started to understand what this is and how this works. It's so funny to me how I've arrived at this place. And it it's also so funny to me how I've almost protected myself in this space as well. Because I, in my inner circle that like you're in, you guys hear me talk about this stuff all the time. Mm-hmm. But yet on social media, I actually have shied away from being really overt and talking about a lot of like things in relation to trauma and attachment theory and somatics, because I have had this feeling of imposter syndrome and that I'm not qualified yet as like the last couple of years, it's become more buzzy. Yeah. I've seen more people really step into the space with a lot less of a foundation than I do. My foundation in this work 
actually started back in college and I didn't even recognize it. So um, I went to college and uh, I switched majors several times, not because I was like always passionate about something. It was really, it came down to a money issue. Like I've, for all intents and purposes, have been on my own since I was 19. Um, I worked up to five jobs when I was in college. And so my major really was determined by what was going to get me out of college the fastest so that I could get a job and like stop like literally living on ramen noodles and um, hitchhiking to class. <laughs> so I, I, my degree is in human development and family studies. And that degree was what was considered a pathway degree. So you had like some people that had that degree were more into like, you know, financial planning and things. And I actually was a financial planner for years. My focus was more on cognitive development and attachment theory. And I did two semesters of independent study with a woman that um, was doing a lot of research on intergenerational family relationships. And she actually wrote a book on intergenerational family relationships. And this was kind of the, this was 2004, 2005. So this is really early as far as like trauma work. It was not mainstream, Yeah. Um, but I can look back now and recognize like that she was actually connected with a lot of the people now that are considered to be some of like the grandfathers of this like modality of somatics. And I always thought that my degree had nothing to do with what I do, but then we adopted our girls. And in order to adopt children in the way that I adopted children, I had to learn about attachment theory and trauma all over again, just in a different way. You know, our first adoption agency did not do a lot to prepare us, but our second one handed me a stack of books that I all had to read. Um, the in, the interconnected child, um, love hurts, um, love me, feed me. There's all of these things that like are rooted about, you know, that we had to learn in order to take in a child that maybe didn't get adequate nutrition, maybe was sexually abused. You just don't know um, when you're adopting children. So that was really like 2017, 2018. I was really starting to recognize like, oh, I'm learning about this stuff. And oh shit, like I already know this stuff. Like this is what I studied in college. It was almost like I had put up a barrier because I had really almost resented my college experience because I had so much debt from it. I was paying the student loans. Many times I was behind on my student loans. I can't tell you how many times I put them in forbearance or whatever it's called, where I was like, oh, I can't pay that, cannot pay that. That $40,000 over there, I cannot pay. I'm just going to ignore that. So my college experience in general was kind of a traumatic experience in itself. So I didn't really want to acknowledge any of that. So I really started to like, when we were adopting Liena, there was a lot more work that we had to do. And so I started to kind of recognize these things. And then it was a couple of years later when I started kind of getting to a point in business where I was like, this feels really wrong. I started to kind of read again, like, how can I support myself in my business better? How can I support myself in my relationship? I was seeing and picking up on certain things in working with clients and recognizing things about myself 
through the lens of like really learning to understand people. And this, this really started to emerge for me after I moved from my hometown. And I had tried talk therapy before. I did talk therapy in 2009. Um, Christopher and I broke up. I am one of the lucky ones that during the Great Recession in 2008, I lost my job. I was at the bottom of just like a mental state. Like it was just not well. I remember having like basically a mental breakdown Christmas of 2008. um, My dad had to kind of like hold me up and was like, get it together. And my dad was very much a man that was like, you know, suck it up. Yeah. (laughs) You can do this. Like that kind of behavior. Um, And so I started talk therapy in 2009 for a short period of time. When Christopher and I were broken up, I had moved to San Antonio I started a new job. I had really run away from that relationship. Um, Run away is a perfect example. I'd run away from that relationship because I was faced with the fact that I didn't have a job and I was going to have to rely on him to take care of everything, which was, I had a huge identity crisis over. And so I took a job and I moved, broke off our engagement. I was living on my own and the place where I was working actually offered like therapy as part of like something you could very easily take advantage of. So it was, it it was, I worked at USAA and they did a really great job of like, like reiterating, if you need support, if you need help, if you do, you can, this is really accessible. So that was the first time I really experienced therapy. And what I noticed immediately when I was doing talk therapy was that as I finished a session I felt exhausted. Mm -hmm. There was like an exhaustion in my body because it was really, it was speaking it out loud, but the speaking it out loud translated into my body feeling really uneasy. Um, I remember getting off of like my first therapy session and being covered in hives and like anytime I would have like a deep conversation with somebody, like, you know, I had, um, personal training clients that were counselors and therapists. And, you know, I didn't ever want to use them that way, but, you know, through me being their personal trainer, we'd have in-depth conversations. Sometimes I would talk about things and I would get goosebumps or I feel lots of tension in my neck. I have a spot in my back that would seize up. I would get hives. Um, I would get blotchy, like my heart would race. And so I would notice after talk therapy I felt exhausted. It was like my body felt like it was running a marathon mm-hmm. because the actual talking about it didn't feel safe in my body. Like the way it was being talked about, it wasn't a relief. It was actually like taking on more stress. And the best way I can describe the difference in somatic therapy is that it really starts with the body. Like it starts with the body, like how you're feeling, how is your breath? How is your heart rate? What feelings come up in your body as you're discussing this? Whereas talk therapy, it's just talk it out, talk, 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 talk. And it's ignoring the feeling in your body that comes when you're talking. Yeah. And so it's a deeper, like it's, it's just deeper because it's recognizing that everything up here is actually stored in here. And when you don't ignore 
what's going on in here, as you're experiencing here, you get further through. And I, it just, it changed the way that I look at things. I, you know, I, I can't say that I did talk therapy for like a long period of time. I probably only did six to eight sessions, but as somebody that's been in somatic therapy on and off for over a year and spent some time with some other somatic therapists watching them, I was in a, like a container where it was taught at a more in-depth level, um, just everything I've read, everything I've exposed myself to, um, the feeling is so different because when I was talking it out, it, there didn't seem that there was any resolution other than just me talking about it. The resolution was like, you just get it out. Once it's off your shoulders, you just get it out. But, but no, you can get it out, but it can still live in you. Whereas the goal of somatics is to actually go back to the point where you felt something so deeply and to re-experience that. And through re-experiencing it and feeling it, you actually process it differently and it moves forward. And I've had this done for me a few times now where I've come up against something and then I've been allowed to re-experience it and you notice the lightness in your body. I'm like, oh, I didn't even realize I was carrying that. But it's like, we all walk around carrying a backpack full of bricks and those bricks we carry. And once you start recognizing what those bricks are and you relive and re-experience those bricks, you can take the brick out, you can set it down and it's no longer your burden to carry on your body anymore. I mean, my head goes straight to this weekend where I was having these and I was like, I feel it in my chest. Like my chest is so tight. Also similar to what you say, if when I cry, oh, I break out in highs. If I ever I cry, I get so splotchy. I'm, I'm, I'm interested though. So I can't even imagine kind of what a somatic therapy session looks like then. Cause do you still talk about the process and then you kind of go through? Yeah. I mean, for like, me, sometimes it looks more like talk therapy. Mm-hmm. But there's a moment when you're guided to really feel into what you're talking about. I think the best way to describe it is I can actually just give you an example that I'm comfortable in sharing. Um, I, when I grew up, we, I lived, I grew up down on the Southern border of Texas. It's right on, I like 10 miles from Mexico, very unique place to grow up. I have a lot, I have a life experience growing up there that most people would not have very low socioeconomic level. Um, and you know, my parents did not have a lot of money. We did not come from money. Both my parents worked really hard. Um, neither of my parents have college degrees and my mom was really young when she had me and we, my mom and dad had the three of us right in a row. So Right now, my brother and sister and I are 37, 38, and 40. When I turned 40 in December, we had been 37, 38, 39. So we are right in a row. My parents had kids right back to back to back. My mom was, my mom had three kids by the time she was 25. So a lot. <laughs> and they were trying to work and 
you know, three kids in daycare was really expensive and we were always sick. So my mom was always having to miss work and my dad was having to miss work. And it was not uncommon in from where I live for people to have like live in like housekeepers slash nannies. Um, and a lot of them were actually not United States citizens. And it was super, super, super common. Like in other parts of the country, yeah. this may seem like ludicrous and crazy where I'm from. This was so, so common, especially in the eighties. Um, and so we had a girl that lived with us starting when I was in, I think I was going into kindergarten. She lived with us until I was in fifth grade. She was a huge part of my life. So she was there when we got home from school. She was there to get us up in the mornings. Um, you know, my parents worked until five or six. So she she was the one that was really around with us. Um, you know, as soon as my parents got home, like she was off and she had weekends off or whatever. But during the week, she was a constant in my life for seven years, like an older sister type of vibe. She left suddenly when I was 11. She got pregnant. She had had a boyfriend for a long period of time. And she decided like, you know, when she found out she was pregnant, that she was going to leave. And it literally happened is where she came in. She didn't come home one night. My parents were so worried. She ended up coming home the next day. And this was like, call it like early 1990s. This is a long cell phones, no cell phones, none of that. It was a totally different time. She can't literally came home. She packed her stuff and inside of 20 minutes, she was, she was gone. And I remember being so confused, um, about what was happening. And I remember my younger sister, like crying and crying and crying because she was leaving. And I remember that moment so clearly watching her leave, watching her leave, watching her go watching her never come back into my life. Somebody that was like a huge part of my life was just vanished without a hug goodbye, without closure. And I never really thought about that moment after, um, you know, she was gone. I never really thought about that moment until we had a nanny that was with us for 18 months or so. And I became very close to her. She was somebody that was in our life. Um, She was somebody that I counted as a friend. She was somebody that I really trusted. She was somebody that I admired for my girls. Um, I had a relationship very similar to her as probably my mom had to the woman that took care of us. She was like, she wasn't somebody that worked for us. She was a part of our family. Like that was what was modeled to me was like, this is not somebody that takes care of your kids. This is somebody that's like a part of your family. Like they're important. They are people. They're your friend. Like they are a part of your family. Um, And there were two instances where we almost lost our nanny. Like she was trying to move on. And both times I was able to like, keep her. But I didn't realize that like a lot of the like anxiousness that I felt around her was actually just the transferable experience from me feeling super anxious when my, one of my main caregivers just walked out when I was younger. Um, 
And I noticed that like, you know, towards the end of when our nanny was with us, there was like a disengagement and an almost like an anger and a resentment that I felt that really was misplaced. And I could recognize like, why am I behaving like this? Like, why am I feeling this way? Why am I creating this story? And I was like watching myself do it. And I was in a somatic therapy session. I was talking about that. And my therapist actually asked me, like, he's like, he, he like asked me some questions. And I, I started talking about my nanny from when I was young, from this woman that took care of us. And she was, like I said, she was such an important part of our lives because my, my parents were like, sometimes my mom was working like sometimes seven days a week. My dad had a job where like there were seasons of the year where he was working 16, 18 hour days. Like she was holding the fort together so that my parents could work and put food on the table. Yeah. And I was like, in talking about that, when I got back to that moment of when she was leaving, I just had this overwhelming sense of emotion. And I just like burst out crying. And it was like 11 year old Lacey was back in that moment when I was literally, I can visualize her leaving. I can see myself standing. We lived in a house. My parents rented a house until I was 15 years old. We lived in a 1200 square foot house. There were six people living in a 1200 square foot house. My brother, sister, and I shared an 11 by 11 room, two bunk beds and a twin bed, um, two bathrooms. It was small. I actually went back to it a few years ago and you like, don't realize till you go back to places like, whoa, we, how did we all live here? Like, holy shit. But it had an entryway and there was an archway and there was like a step up and I can literally see myself standing on the carpet. I can see the color of the carpet. I can see the color of the entryway tile. I know what it looks like. I can see the lighting in the entryway. It was dark. You can see the thing. I can see her in her room, packing her stuff, crying. I can hear my sister. I can hear my mom crying and being like, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Um, and I can re-experience that. And I can also recognize that that was the beginning of me truly becoming a parentified child. Because when she left, I became the one that was home with my siblings when we got home from school. I became the one that was home all summer watching my siblings. I became that So in that moment with my own nanny grown up as a 39 year old woman, when our nanny was leaving, I'm feeling the same sense of abandonment and then heaviness of responsibility of, I have to do this alone now. And so it was the reliving of that and the expression of the emotion and the understanding where that thought pattern came from in my body, in my life, that actually helped me to release the guilt that I was feeling against our nanny and even against my caregiver that left us when I was young. And it was the beginning of me recognizing the the weight I had been carrying of like anger towards that experience that led me to being parentified at a young age 
that helped me start to move through that and to even start to recognize that this, that translated into a lot of the behaviors I've experienced as an adult. And it, I, I don't think that there's very many people that even recognize that they can find their way back mm-hmm. into those moments. They can find their way back into those places and experience it and express the emotion that maybe wasn't there and express the emotion of the aftermath and move through it. And then your whole life changes. Yeah. Actually, over Christmas, I had a very large family fight. I mean, and one of the things that comes up all the time for me is there's like two instances, kind of how you're imagining. But like, I remember when I was in fifth grade was the very first time. And I have siblings who three and six years younger than me. I was in fifth grade. And that was the first time my mom left and left me to watch. I was like, my brother was four. I was 10, like watching a four-year-old. And I have so many like memories of that night that she was like, okay, you're going to babysit. And I was just like, what? But then I have this. um, So when I was a senior in high school, my dad was the basketball coach. I had my senior night and my mom wasn't there. She didn't Mm -hmm. show up. And for a long time, I didn't know why she didn't show up. And then because my dad was the coach, they literally are like calling my name. You know, I played basketball my whole life. It's like your big night calling my name. And I'm like walking out on the court basically by myself. Where's my dad kind of thing? Like, where are my parents? I found out maybe eight years later that my mom had gotten a DUI the night before. She was Mm -hmm. actually in jail and that's why she was not there. But it's one of those instances that it always comes up for me. And it's always very just reflective of how I felt a lot of neither of them being there and like having this responsibility. And I talked in my last, cause I just go to talk therapy, but I was just, I was just saying, I was like, I have to get over this instance. I, I know it's just like a symbolic thing, but it's like, I can't keep coming back to that one memory. I'm trying to like work on how, like, how do I move past this one instance? Cause it's something that comes up for me all the time, but it's just so like, that's like so symbolic to me of being alone, basically. I think it's so like, in like for me, this could head in direction. That <laughs> so for me, I think the biggest struggle I've had, even in somatic therapy and my therapist has said the last, like, I guess few sessions, he's like, I feel like we're finally really getting somewhere, which is so funny, but it's also not surprising because again, we don't always want to go back and relive something, right? So we're going to fight it. Our conscious brain wants to process ourselves out of it. It's all of the like bullshit psychology, like mindset stuff. That's like, Oh, you think on it and then you change your behavior and you change your tactic and move forward. But it doesn't, it doesn't actually change. Like nothing actually changes because you haven't actually changed anything at a cellular level. These experiences that we have in our body have changed us on a cellular level. They change us at a genetic level. Trauma is actually expressed in our genes and passed down. You know, I've really started to dive deep into like, generational trauma that I'm carrying. And so to an extent for me in doing this work, I got to a point 
where I recognized that fully awake, fully conscious, I am so strong that to work through things at the level that I need to work through them, I was going to need assistance. And this is why I am no expert. I am very novice. But this is why I am someone that has begun using different forms of plant medicine. It's very new in my life, but it's something that allowed me because we fight it, right? We fight it. It's like, I've got to get through this. I've got to get through this, even if you know, but if you can't shut off your current thought enough to process your past experiences, you're going to have trouble truly working through them. Mm-hmm. And that's something for me that has probably been the biggest awakening for me. And I say this, this is like in the last six months, recognizing that there is assistance that I need in order to get to a place where I can truly process my experiences and truly start to move forward through some of the things that I know are blocking me. Are you open to sharing how you got into your, I would love for you to share more in terms of. Yeah. So it's, I love, I'm, I like, I say this with like, I am so new. Like I'm talking like one big experience and five to six smaller experiences. So I am no expert by any means. I've found a lot of really good resources. I have good people to ask. I've joined a couple of membership groups that have allowed me to learn a little bit more, but I am definitely not somebody that like, like is skilled or would ever advise or put somebody through something. Um, it really started, I, I went to a retreat experience and this was something that, that began to be planned last spring. And I did a, like a full day, like ceremony, utilizing two different types of plant medicine. And it was such a unique experience. There, there's obviously like I have, and I, I've begun to talk about this more, like I have a ton of good girl conditioning. Like I was the smart one. I was the good one. You know, I, I went through periods of time where I rebelled against that when I was in college, my early twenties, but when I rebelled against it, it was also came with an immense amount of guilt because I was the good girl. I was the oldest. I was the caretaker. I was the parentified child. I was the responsible one. I was the one that always made it happen. I was all of these things. And just like most people that grew up in the eighties and nineties, like, like the war on drugs and like red ribbon week and all of those things. And, you know, having a husband that was in law enforcement, um, working on the border, you know, seizing massive quantities of drugs. Like there's definitely like these preconceived notions that I had where I was like, this is bad. Mm -hmm. This is bad. I projected a lot of this is bad on it. But I also through like research and talking to others that I respected, started to realize that like, really the like stigma of this is bad is more so this is misunderstood. 
this has been misunderstood. Like most things in our modern world, we have been trained to believe certain things in certain ways. And we do start to believe things in certain ways because, you know, we look to authority figures, we look to certain people and organizations and government to tell us like, you know, what we're supposed to believe. I am no different. So I started to do my own research. I started to really like start to look into these things. And there was an opportunity for me to go to a retreat and leading up to it, I actually wasn't sure I was going to be able to go because my father was passing away. This last summer was, I don't want to say it was the hardest season of my life because the seasons leading up to our adoptions were brutal, like brutal. Um, Maylee's in particular, because it was such uncharted territory, just a feeling of like total lack of power and being at the, the literally at the disposal of two of like the largest superpower governments in the world is not fun as an individual. So, but this summer was definitely hard and I wasn't even sure I was in the right mindset to do this work. And I was very afraid of like, what was going to be revealed. I think I had this like very big thought that there was going to be, that it was going to be scary. Mm-hmm. I I was afraid that I was going to be facing a lot of like really heavy demons. It felt heavy, like of the unknown. I also was afraid of it being just immensely sad. You know, and there's also that fear of like, I'm four foot, 9.75 inches tall and about 103 pounds. Like is am I going to be given the right amount? Like I'm a small person. Like yes. are they gonna, I don't know how many times I asked. I was like, you realize that I am the size of an average nine-year-old, right? I'm the I'm size of an average nine-year-old. You realize that, right? And so I, I had a, I just had a lot of fear, but you know, my dad passed away two weeks before I went and it, it was almost like I, by the time I got there, I just didn't have any more fucks to give. Like I, my dad passed away. We actually like moved away. I moved away from a relationship with a, like an assistant coach on my team the weekend my dad passed away. And there was just a lot of things going on in my life that by the time I got to the experience, I was like, I literally prayed on the plane. I was listening to something. I was listening to a podcast that my therapist was like, He didn't ask me to listen to this. He was like, I'm telling you, this is what you're listening to on the plane. And I, I'm weird in that. Like, I actually love to have a male coach. I love to have a male therapist. I love to have a certain type of male authority figure in my life. I actually do much better when I have like a strong male. It has to be a certain type, Mm -hmm. but I do much better taking direction from a, like a strong male presence, um, like shout out to my therapist, Will, to my former nutrition coach, Will Grazion. Like I do very well under like those types of like personalities. I was praying, praying, praying. I was like, God, whatever I am to experience this weekend, I just want to experience it without fear, without judgment, and just with total curiosity. I just want to be curious. I don't want to be fearful. I don't want to be resistant. I just want to be so curious. I just want to be so curious. And I want to meet everybody else with so much curiosity as well. So I went into it with just like that feeling. And it was a really safe experience. It was a really well put together experience. But I also, true to me, 
I fought the experience for a long time. I watched in the experiences, a lot of the other people there began to have their own journey. And I was sitting there with my notebook going like, what the fuck is happening? Like nothing is happening. My conscious brain fought going in so much. It's like I fought it tooth and nail. Like I was, I look back to the notes that I was writing that day and I'm so glad I wrote them because I can literally see now, even five months removed, how much I was fighting giving up control in this situation. And once I gave up control, it was like having my axis shifted. It's like the whole point of reference for what I thought who I was as a person and the like frame of reference that I had for relaxation (laughs) completely shifted. And I just had this overwhelming urge to just sleep and not the kind of sleep that you like lay down and take a nap. I'm talking like the full body, like my whole body is just shutting down sleep. And I experienced that on and off for several hours. And I tracked the data with my aura ring. And it's fascinating because my body temperature completely changed. My heart rate completely changed. Everything completely changed. But I had these experiences that really just started to revealed to me a lot of missing pieces. You know, I had always carried this like feeling that I had anger towards a person specifically in my life. And what I really realized was that anger was misplaced and it actually belonged somewhere else. And I was revealed to me like on a deep cellular level that I am the manifestation truly of a, I call it a paternal line of matriarchs. You notice I use paternal line of matriarchs. So I am the definition of a woman that comes from a line of very strong masculine leaders that handled things that were incredibly heavy and kept going. And it's like, it. I never would have gotten to a level of like understanding why I am the way I am had I not gotten to a place where like current thought of like my business, my kids, my husband, my house, my dogs, my mom, my dad, my sister, my brother, my clients, my everything was turned off. And the only thing was left was the parts of Lacey's brain that have already lived through her life. In that moment, I just like, it's like I woke up. It's like, I realized like, oh, I make so much sense. I have all of these females that live inside my body that trudged through like every grandmother and great grandmother in my line. And I haven't even started to get into the great, great grandmothers, but every grandmother and great grandmother in my line lost a spouse suddenly and tragically and trudged on for their kids 
kept going, went right back to work, took care of things and bypassed feeling. And I noticed immediately, I was like, oh, that's what I'm doing. I just lost my dad and I just bypassed feeling to go right back to work. And I was like, oh shit. And it's not even me. It was, it was, it lives in me. And so through that experience, I've had like massive amounts of like, just like awakenings. But recently I've started, I kind of on a cadence, like a rhythm with it, or I'm trying to with like taking uh, like what I call like a little bit more elevated than a microdose, mm-hmm. uh, which is going to look different for everyone. And every person's going to experience it differently. And I think intention and being in therapy and having the tools and having the support is like so important. If you start going in this direction, it's definitely not something I would advise anybody to just do like on their own. Like I have all of this support and all of these resources to process after, but it's like my body recognizes when the medicine comes in and it's my brain has recognized, oh, okay, we're, we're turning off now. And it's like the ego drops and you actually just think about things that have been plugged up in your brain for a long period of time. And I don't think everybody experiences that way. I know everybody gets something different and it depends on the context You know, I'm always like, it's in the evenings after I put my kids to bed, I start setting the intentions early in the day. I start journaling. And if I notice that I have trouble acclimating into the feeling of like going in, I will just say, nope, this is not the day. Like I have enough awareness to recognize. Mm -hmm. But in the few experiences I've had recently, I've been able to, again, work deeper and deeper and deeper into some processes and it, it, it changes your life, changes your nervous system, changes the way you relate to people. It's changing the way I relate to my clients. It's changing my own awareness around my own patterns. Um, it changes the way I see myself, changes the way I judge myself. It changes. It's just changed me. And I like, I feel like lucky to be in a place where I can, actually dive deeper into this because, you know, my, my goals surround building, I have a sign that says right here in the process of building unlimited wealth. And if I desire to do that, I believe that it's not in the, like I've done the biggest message I got in October was you've done enough. Like I've done 12 years of work done 12 years of consistency. I've done the strategy. I've done the learning. I've done the building. I've done laying the foundation. I've done the branding. I've done, I've done, I've done, I've done, I've done, I've done. I don't have to do anymore to get to unlimited wealth, but I do have to be more. And so I'm figuring out what, what I have to be to, to be the person that holds unlimited wealth, wealth, meaning money, wealth, meaning happiness, wealth, meaning, meaning experiences, wealth, meaning richness of life, wealth, meaning health, 
wealth meaning everything, not just money, but like all facets of like human wealth. I am on a journey to learn how to hold that. I'm happy to be close in on your journey. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think it's really interesting how you are using microdosing as well. Because I haven't, I feel a lot of the conversation is more around even people taking it more so in the morning, using it more towards creativity and focus. So I think it's just interesting to hear all the different ways it can be used. That was the biggest thing I learned because everybody kept telling me, you're going to have to use this during the day. And I was like, the hell am I going to do with my clients? You realize I'm a mom, right? Like, so I had actually strayed away from it because it had been told to me, you have to do it this way. And so I actually went searching for answers. I was like, there's got to be other people that recognize that we are different. And I actually found a community of other moms that are using mushrooms, actually called mom on mushrooms. If she like, I, I like this woman doesn't even know I exist. And I'm just like, everybody go sign up for this $4.99 membership. It gave me permission to do it my way, to recognize that it, while it can make me focus and energized, I it's the medicine's going to tell your body to do what it, what your body needs to do most. And my body needs most to rest. So when I, if I took a microdose right now, like I'd be in my bathtub or in my bed inside of an hour, it takes me about an hour, hour and five minutes to drop in. And so, um, that would not be good for like a productive human that has clients and children that need me. So, um, I've found a groove and make in timing it so that my mom day is over, my work day is over, and I can just be without distraction. So I have a question. From Mm -hmm. my understanding, your work in somatics has been quite the investment Mm -hmm. in terms like a monetary investment. Do you have any suggestions on people for people who are maybe wanting to develop dive more into this and aren't really here, don't have, you know, maybe five. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's important to notate my somatic therapist doubles as he is also a business mentor. So I have two business mentors. I have Jen that I have been with for a couple of years. And then Will and I have actually worked together on and off for over a year now. So he's been in my life for a couple of years when this is like a simple, it's It can be as simple as going to find a somatic therapist and Google. And for me, the best resource is it's directory.traumahealing.org. So traumahealing.org. And it literally takes you to Somatic Experiencing International. Find a somatic experiencing practitioner. You can search by location. I always urge my clients to take a look at who is local or to read through profiles. And I think this is a process that you want to make sure that you choose somebody that you're comfortable with. Um, I believe that typically our guts are drawn towards something certain. And a lot of times we don't lean into that for whatever reason. So I always ask my clients when they start looking for somebody, like they'll send me some profiles and I'm always like, okay, which one were you drawn to first? And they'll tell me and I'm like, okay, why? We'll actually speak about it. And then it kind of comes down to, you know, depending on, I I always let, like, I want to like 
and I was having this conversation with my own therapist yesterday. Like I am not trauma trained. I am trauma informed. I think there's a lot of people starting to operate as trauma trained that are not trauma trained and that I get worried for mm-hmm. the, for, I get worried for people's trauma there because I definitely am cognizant of my line. I know when I get to a point where I'm like, okay, this is a pass off opportunity in the same way that I understand this in the health and fitness industry. Like, okay, this is our line of what we can support. And then this is when it goes to somebody else. And that requires you to have no ego. And a lot of people's ego is wrapped up in money. And uh, my, I, I tell myself regularly, like, this is not about me making money, which is why I feel like I don't put that, put this out a lot on my page. Cause I don't want anybody to hire me because they think that I'm going to be the person that helps them through their trauma. I am not the person that's going to be able to help you through your trauma. However, I am probably a person that through asking you questions about your behaviors will get you to a point to recognize what things are actually blocking you by supporting you in a way that leads you to a place where you can go into a trauma trained container and understand what you need to start working on. And that's another thing. It's like, there's a difference between somebody that needs to handle big T trauma and somebody that needs to dive deeper into just some issues with attachment. Now attachment and big T trauma can go hand in hand together, but they're not always the same. So depending on what you're experiencing, depending like that may there just like there's health and wellness coaches that specialize in certain things. There's going to be somatic experiencing practitioners that specialize in certain things. So it's finding the right person for you. Um, that somatic healing international is a great place. You can also go to like psychology today. And there are a lot of traditional talk therapists that are actually leaning into getting certifications in somatic experiencing, I think it's important to note that if you're doing somebody that is doing your own due diligence and the way that you would do, I think people should do their own due diligence when hiring a business coach, when hiring a health and nutrition coach, your question should be, how long have you been practicing? This is not to say that somebody that's brand new doesn't deserve your business. But I do think that Asking about somebody's experience is never wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you've got somebody, there's there's all these certifications that are popping up. Like there's a big gonna be a big difference between somebody that's been through a three-year somatic experiencing training and like practicum, like working under somebody in a more like structured way, and somebody that did a 12-week program. There's a completely different. And so one is not wrong and one is not right. It's just you recognizing like, what do you want? Is the person holding you equipped to hold you? And does the person you're hiring have the ability to hold you or understand when they cannot hold you anymore and put their ego down and move you to the right place? which I think is a problem. This I could go on all day. I think this is a problem in our industry at large. Like there's people holding people that they shouldn't be holding. And I could talk for to you about that for an hour. <laughs> I I mean, I definitely want to hit on because we didn't even really do an intro. I'm going to have to go back and do an intro. But Lacey is my business mentor. 
and she's like my business coach, but then yes, I also have a therapist. And I think it's really important that, especially even people working with a fitness coach or something, just because, you know, we're here as your fitness coach does not mean that I can be your therapist. There's always that certain line in terms of, I think, especially when we get into things with the body image or disordered eating or anything. But at the same time, Lacey does really ask me questions that I write down. And then I go into therapy with my therapist. It's like, well, I was thinking about this and starting to notice where things are having a a block in our life or being able to work through that in a deeper capacity for sure. Yeah. The right nutrition coach can ask you questions they can be a springboard for you th- for things you can dig deeper into in therapy. The right business mentor can ask you the right questions, can lead you into a level of self-discovery where you recognize, okay, this is what I need to go work on in therapy. And it's understanding that line. And then also understanding like, and I, I say this all the time, like understanding like consent, you know, if you're a coach, and you're going to deliver really difficult feedback. If you're a mentor and you're going to deliver really difficult feedback, it is your responsibility to ask if the person is ready and available to receive that feedback because you can unknowingly create trauma mm-hmm. by delivering feedback. And we're not perfect. We can't. But like it's understanding one of the things I aim to, to do inside my mentorship containers is to model for people what it looks like to understand people, to have discernment around people's behaviors, to have discernment around your words, to use your words intentionally, to ask for consent where it makes sense, and to operate with a level of like clarity on like what that means because I get a lot of coaches that come to me traumatized (laughs) from certain things in certain containers and really the traumatization I don't even know if that's a word it comes from like feedback being delivered without consent or feedback being delivered without understanding the makeup of the person um, which is actually really dangerous it's really dangerous you can really harm somebody's mental and emotional state by delivering feedback. This goes for health coaches. This goes for business mentors. This goes for, you can really harm somebody's mental and emotional state if you don't know how to do this, which by the time this airs, it will be over. But that's one of the things I aim to teach inside of Intimate Coach Collaborative is getting coaches to recognize why this needs to be a tool why they need these communication techniques, why they need to do this, because it needs to be more mainstream. It it has to be, or else, you know, I, I feel like this is why our industry is breaking and broken. This has been ignored. And then if this is modeled, then you've got coaches that are then going into their nutrition containers and delivering the same kind of feedback without discernment, without intention, without consent. We, If we're going to be coaches, if we're going to be mentors, your biggest responsibility is to be highly schooled in people. I truly believe I will be successful because at the heart of it, I have always aimed to be a student of people. 
I want to understand people. I want to understand how I can support people. I desire to make money, but I desire to make money in exchange for being somebody that truly understands how to support people. And that's what's going to change our industry at all levels. This has been deep. This has been great. No, I thank one, you. I have one final question. I usually wrap <laughs> things up with, but basically if you could just give one piece of life advice to young women who are trying to find their path, what would that be? Failure means nothing about you as a person. Failure means absolutely nothing about you as a person. Your ability to fail and look at it is like the most beautiful opportunity for growth and reflection and clarity is going to be your like biggest key to overcoming, no matter what it is. Failure does not mean you're wrong. Failure does not mean you're bad. Failure does not mean you're stupid. Failure does not mean anything about you as a person. Failure is just that something didn't work out the way you thought it was going to work out. And that's just an invitation for you to find out what you need for it to work out the next time. There's, I mean, that's, it's huge, right? It's so huge, right? Like, like what, What would happen if we approach that? And I am not perfect here, but if I told people the number of times, even last year in my million dollar year, I launched something to have two people buy it, or I launched something to have nobody buy it, or I launched something and nobody even responded, or I had a week where I made $50,000 and a week where I made $19.99. Like it doesn't mean anything about me. It doesn't mean anything about me. And it doesn't mean anything about you either. We make it mean something about ourselves that it's not. And if we release ourselves from that shame, if we release ourselves from the shame that failure means we are bad, that something turning out the way you want it to means you're wrong. If we release ourselves from the projection of shame and instead we just allow ourselves to again, meet it with curiosity and move forward to feel the sadness when it doesn't work. And then to move forward into the next thing anyways, we'll have a whole lot more successful people. But in order to get to this place, you need to feel safe enough foundationally as a human to recognize that your relationship with failure has to be safe. Mm-hmm. Your relationship with failure is a relationship. I have a really great relationship with failure. I will fail all day and be let and and move right on. I'm not afraid to fail. I play the then what game all the time. Like, okay, so this doesn't work. Then what? Okay, yeah. So this one, then what? Finally get down to the root of like, it's not as bad as you think. And I mean, you I know just- you're referencing like, launches and stuff but that's 100% how I felt in terms of my marriage I failing you know lack of a better term it's like I failed at that and just being very curious and how can I do this better and making sure I don't make the same mistakes and again dating again hey you know what I'm not gonna fail at marriage again but it's like dating and relationships and to your point okay then what right if that does if this doesn't work I know that I will be okay. I loved mm-hmm. that advice. Well, thank you. you know. Well, 
guys, I'm going to drop Lacey's Instagrams and I will also drop the links in terms of the website she suggested if you are interested in diving into somatics. But thank you so much for being on and um, I will talk to all you listeners soon.